God, today we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask for healing. In a day where we are so connected to the world, set us apart. In a time of great unrest and uncertainty, we ask for holiness. So search our hearts, renew our minds, and help us love like you love us. Make us holy. Use us to do your will on this earth. God, today we ask that you would restore us. Gather up the bits and pieces of our souls and mend them with your loving hand. Search out those parts that we try to hide from you. Today, God, we invite you in. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. We trust you. May we be set apart for you. May we be holy. Well, I remember being in seminary and uh, it was all a buzz. People were talking about this individual who was an incredible and gifted speaker. In fact, they were saying that perhaps this individual was going to become the next Billy Graham. I heard words that, have you heard that this person has started preaching out of the book of Leviticus and people are coming by the thousands to Mars Hill Church? He speaks with eloquence, he speaks with curiosity, he drives you deep into the word to discover unknown things that no one has ever seen before. He is an unbelievable order, he is an unbelievable pastor, and he will be the next individual to bring about the great awakening of our day. The person that I speak about, we've often heard, some of you might remember his name, he was a hip interesting, very well-experienced person by the name of Rob Bell. Now, I am not someone who is speaking on someone's salvation, but what I will tell you is this, is that for years, Mars Hill Church grew to the size of probably 10,000 people. Rob was responsible and did the series known as NUMA, videos that were creative and interesting, that seemed to bring about God in reality. People were speaking of him and saying again that he was this amazing person until the point that they began to recognize something was off. In and around 2011, Rob Bell wrote a book saying, Love Wins. And essentially, the content of the book was a Unitarian perspective denying the reality of hell and its magnitude, as well as individuals being separated from God because of his judgment. Interestingly enough, as many people thought Rob was going to be the next Billy Graham, people came to, be, to discover that Rob was promoting a false Christian faith. Now again, I am not God and I'm not judging whether or not Rob knows the Lord, but what I can tell you is that what was being promoted was false. Interestingly enough, where is Rob Bell today? 
Rob is surfing in California, promoting his own TV show called The Rob Bell Show, masquerading with celebrities and essentially uh, teaching and preaching on the church of, uh, I'm forgetting, um, oh shoot, oh, Oprah Winfrey, thank you. Now, again, I am not saying that these individuals are saved or not, but what I am telling you is it's very interesting to see that this is an open case of someone in our day who had all the makings, all the right things to say, sweetness of words. And yet, what he was promoting was not correct teaching. Why am I talking about that? Why do I bring that up? Well, today we are continuing in our series, Second Peter, and we're going to be looking at the latter part of chapter 2. And for those of you that are with us, I just would ask that you'd give me a moment to get people caught up as to why we are where we are and the background behind what Peter is saying. First and foremost, 2 Peter is obviously the second of two epistles that the Apostle Peter wrote. Now, the first one, he is writing essentially to guard against external forces that are coming against the church. But in this letter, his main emphasis, he is writing against our internal forces of false teaching that are permeating and distorting the message of the gospel. Most likely, Peter is writing in between 64 and 67 AD as he's imprisoned in Rome. We also know that Peter understands and recognizes that this is his swan song. He knows that he is not going to be released from prison and that he will soon be martyred for his faith. We discover that actually in the writing of 2 Peter as in the first part of the chapter he references the transfiguration. The transfiguration is essentially when Peter, James, and John go up to a mountain and they see Jesus in his revealed glory. They begin to realize that there is Moses and Elijah representing essentially the law and the prophets with him and that Jesus indeed is God in the flesh. After the transfiguration, they transcend or essentially come back down the mountain, and Peter realizes that what he has seen and what he realizes is true, that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And as we see in the first part of chapter 1, Peter is saying, not only have I seen this, but we also have God's written word to tell us that indeed that Jesus is Savior. So why is that important? Well, again, we're going to continue, and I'm repeating this question. I know that for some of you that are type A, you're probably saying, why is this question the same? Because it's so foundational to who we are and how we go about living our lives for our Lord and Savior Jesus. And that is this. Why is it so important to have a real, growing and grounded faith in Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And what I want to do is this. I want to just throw this out to you. Sometimes I wonder, I wonder how and I wonder why that in and around the 1980s, we began seeing the emergence of the megachurch. 
we began seeing obviously this new phenomena where a church over a thousand people was donned or deemed a megachurch. And then from 1980 until now, we've seen just this mass movement of megachurches. Now please hear me. This is not a judgment on all megachurches. This is not a judgment on all of them. But I ask a very simple question. How is it that our country has exploded with megachurches over the last 30 years, and yet morally, we are in a huge, rapid decline. It doesn't add up. And so friends, here what I'm to tell you is this. I am not saying that all megachurches are bad. But what I am saying is, just because there's a bunch of people there, check the fruit that they're preaching and they're teaching. And that's why it's so important to have a real, growing, and grounded faith in Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Essentially, what I want to do is the summary, again, of 2 Peter chapter 1. He starts off and he says, friends, it's important that you have a real faith. And what he means by that is, is that your faith is grounded in Jesus Christ, that you have a real encounter with him. It's not religion. Okay? It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not just going to church and ticking off the box. It is having a real, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus as your Savior. That's number one. But then he also says this. As good as that is, as blessed is as that is, that is essentially not enough. You're to have a growing faith. He says, may we add to our faith these certain attributes. And so, friends, what I want to tell you is salvation is wonderful. I'm not belittling that. I'm not saying that that's less important. But what I am telling you is this. If after, quote-unquote, having an encounter with Jesus, nothing in your life has changed, nothing is different, nothing is moving away from the world toward the Word of God, toward Jesus, toward holiness, toward sanctification, I am not judge, but I'm going to lovingly ask, was that encounter real? Last week I told you about essentially my marriage to Kelly, and I said, sure, I'm married to her. But then if I told you, you know, I haven't really spent any time with her since we walked down the aisle. I don't really know her. It was great. We got married. But I don't really know what's going on, but we're married. Would you say that's a good marriage? And so in that analogy, friends, what I'm telling you is if we're the bride of Christ... Wouldn't that hold true for us? Friends, I'm not preaching or promoting legalism. I'm not asking you or expecting you to look like me or talk like me. But what I am encouraging and exhorting is this, that we are to have a real faith and we're to have a growing faith, an evidence of our faith. You want to know if you are saved? It's not, did you pray the prayer? It's, is your life different how have you changed? Has the world, essentially, and all that is there, started to move to the background of your life? And has the kingdom and Jesus come to the forefront of your mind? 
Now, in this, I'm not saying that we can't live our lives and enjoy the blessedness of living, but what I am saying is that if our hearts are not driven toward a deeper relationship with God, if it's just something ticking off the box, if it's just a religious ritual, then lovingly what I'm going to tell you is I don't know that that's a real faith. But what I will also say is that if it is a real faith, these things just go hand in hand. It's real, you grow, and your faith is grounded. And that's the final thing that Peter exhorts in the first part of this chapter, is he says that our faith is to be grounded. It's to be grounded in Jesus because Peter says, I've seen him. I know that he was transfigured. I know that he is the Lord. But then he also says, as good as that is, as good as that experience was, what I'm to tell you is that what's even better is that we have the word of God to tell us about who Jesus is and how we are saved and how we are to live our life for him. And then everybody says, well, that's great. But why are you saying this, Peter? Why are you spending so much time on that foundation? And Peter says, because I'm going to tell you chapter 2, which is where we're going to be, the latter part of it, is that there's false teachers out there. There are people coming into the church in the guise of the Christian faith promoting a false Christianity, promoting something that isn't real, turning you away from the gospel. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And last week we talked about a couple of modern heresies that people need to watch out for. We need to look and recognize that no, it isn't come as you are, stay as you are. It's come and you have been transformed and you are to change. God is love, but God is also judge. Friends, it's not that you have been saved so that you can do what you want, how you want, and when you want. You haven't been saved to be free. You've been saved to be free from the penalty of sin, but you now have a new master who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, friends, lovingly I ask you, is, is Jesus Lord of your life? Peter continues on. And he says, this is important. Why is it important? Well, I'm going to start off with this. Jesus himself says, be careful. In Matthew 7, 15 through 17, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. And so friends, what I want to tell you is this. Oftentimes, everybody gets so excited about a church that is exploding. Oh my gosh, it's gone from 100 people to 200,000 people in a day. Maybe. But what I'm going to tell you is this. Don't look at the growth, meaning the expansion, 
figure out what kind of tree it is. Because a good tree will bear good fruit. But a bad tree will bear bad fruit. And so lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. When a church grows, praise God for it, if it's growing for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But just because a church, little c, gets big, it doesn't mean that it's bearing good fruit. Hence, lovingly, Rob Bell. And so Peter is encouraging us to say, be discerning, be wise, look at what's being taught. And friends, so what I want to tell you is this, oftentimes in some of the churches, they will be out telling you about moral things. Jesus exists to change your morals. Jesus exists to give you a better life. Jesus exists to give you the better things in life so that you can be happy, wealthy, and wise. No, friends. How can you be happy, wealthy, and wise when you're spiritually dead? If there's no message about salvation, if there's no message about sin, if there's no message about the fact that we, all of ourselves, myself included, are dead in our sin, and there is no way we can get to God on our own other than by what Jesus has done by going to the cross to die upon it so that we might have eternal life. Something's wrong. And friends, trust me, as much as it would be wonderful just to teach and preach love wins, to say that we're all fine and just basically the reason that Jesus is here is to sort of rightly guide us because we're already good. We just need to become better. I guarantee you this church would explode. But lovingly, what I would tell you is, is I'm teaching and preaching bad fruit. Friends, Jesus died on the cross because we're sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus died on the cross because we can't get to God on our own. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who, big word, atones, basically, pays for our sin so that we, by placing our faith and trust in Him, can have eternal life. But also in that, Jesus asks and says, when you place your faith and trust in me, who is your master? If you love me, what will you do? Feed my sheep. So friends, are we feeding Jesus' sheep? Or are we feeding our sensual desires and are we masquerading as wolves in sheep's clothing? If you have your Bibles... We're going to look at the latter part of chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And essentially, Peter is continuing on talking about false teachers. And what I'd like to do is, is just read essentially this passage. And then I'm going to break down essentially the motivation of these false teachers so that you can see them and discover them. Now, why am I doing this? The other thing that I want to tell you is, is that there are a lot of what I would say Christian books out there. And some of them are wonderful. But just because a book is in the Christian section in a bookstore does not mean that it is of the Christian faith. And so lovingly, what I tell you is this. Please, whenever you read a book, that's fine. But don't treat it as gospel. Go to the Word of God and see how it measures up. 
And if it doesn't smell right, it probably isn't. And so don't take that and put that into your theology of who God is. Somewhat classic modern example, The Shack. How many of you heard of that book? People read that book by the thousands. They thought it was an amazing book. And please hear me, I'm not saying don't read The Shack. I'm not afraid of it. But don't get your theology from it. Don't read The Shack and think, well, that's who God is. Because interestingly enough, if you read The Shack, there's a point where it's mentioned that God is Sophia. And this name of Sophia is transcending in there. And for those of you that need to know why this is so wrong, is this. Because in ancient times, the Gnostics were a heretical brand of Christian faith. And what they believed was that Jesus was sort of a conduit to a greater God. Gnosticism, gnosis, is the word knowledge. And from knowledge, they began to believe that they would transcend into a deeper religion. Interestingly enough, the Gnostics taught that the entrance point of faith was Jesus. But behind Jesus, through gnosis or knowledge, you transcended 39 gods to the demiurge called Sophia. The point of the shack is the transcendence of the individual to a deeper, undiscovered faith because the entrance point wasn't enough. It's heresy. It's Gnosticism masquerading as Christian faith. Peter says in verse 13, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straightway, hence my title, Keeping It Straight, and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam or Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is re reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off in the end than they were in the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. 
a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that has washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Friends, why are we speaking of this today? And the reason that we are is because way back, Peter had warned that there would be false teachers. This isn't an anomaly. This isn't something that should surprise us. It has been spoken of in the Old Testament. It's been spoken of in the New Testament. As long as the church, meaning the real church, the true church, continues, and until our Heavenly Father tells Jesus to come and collect His bride, which is the church or the end times, false teachers will exist. And sometimes false teachers will come into churches or create churches in the name of Jesus, but they will be anything but Christian. And I simply throw out to you progressive Christianity. That should just make you rile when you hear it. There is nothing progressive about the Christian faith. It doesn't change. It doesn't reveal itself over time. There aren't deeper things to discover. What we have is the Word of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, as God has chosen to reveal Himself through Jesus but also through Jesus, the Word of God. And so, friends, when you hear somebody come up with this idea of, oh, we've been doing it wrong, or, oh, I discovered this hidden secret in the Bible that for centuries has been not known, and now we should be doing it this way, or we should be doing it that way, or, oh, there's a hidden book here that really tells us who God is, and you should follow that. And by the way, when you do, send me 1999, and I'll be happy to give you a copy of my learning. You should say something's wrong. Want to. I want to show you that Peter drives out, particularly in these verses, is the first aspect about false teachers, and that's found in 13 through 14. False teachers will have a false passion. They will have a false passion. If you look, particularly in these verses, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure, their passion, what they're after, is to carouse in broad daylight their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. Their passion is their own ideology, their own ministry, their own fame, their own wealth, their own whatever it might be. It isn't our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. With eyes full of adultery, Okay, this is interesting because oftentimes individuals say, is that adultery sort of on what we would call the physical level? Possibly. But I think more Peter is going in an adulterous nature to the relationship that we should have with our, obviously, Father because we're the bride of Christ. You see that? So it's not just physical, it could be. But I think it's a spiritual adultery in the sense that Peter is saying, look, if we're the bride of Christ and essentially Jesus is our father, by essentially 
saying that we are united to Jesus, but then promoting a different gospel, we're committing adultery. Make sense? Okay, so that kind of hopefully helps you with that. And then he says, uh, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. What they're after is they're looking for people to draw them to whatever they can peddle. Whatever sounds good. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, trust me, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could come to you and just say, okay, everybody, I've discovered a hidden secret, okay, in the Bible. And really what you need to do is there's this red pill and this blue pill, right? And just take the blue and all of your worries will go away. That's all you got to do. And then guess what? Everything that you want, everything that you desire, all of your problems will go away. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You can retire how you want, where you want, and when you want. And you never have to concern yourself with anything else in the world. And just so you know, Jesus did this for you. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? It's a lie. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. Jesus does exist to bring about a better life. But what I will tell you is this. Jesus does not exist to bring about the better life that you think you deserve and you desire. The better life that Jesus exists for is when he is Lord of your life and you are transformed into his leading, guiding, and directing. That's the better life. That's what Jesus died to do. But also, friends, Jesus died for all of us so that we may be reunited with God and escape eternal punishment, which is separation from him in a physical reality hell. And the reason that I say this is just think through this logic. Why would God give his one and only son to die on a cross if we're already good and all we need to do is become better? It just doesn't make sense. If we're already good and we just need to become better, why would Jesus be sacrificed on the cross? But if we're dead in our sin, as the word says, if there's no way to get to God, if, as we discover in the Old Testament, that the law is there to demonstrate our depravity, but yet Jesus comes not to remove the law, but to fulfill it, then we realize the cost of our salvation. Then we realize the importance of having a real faith with Jesus. Then we realize how important it is to grow in him. Now friends, I'm not saying that we all have to be perfect. I'm not saying that, like I've said before, in sort of this pathway of sanctification or holiness, that it's just a straight line trajectory, right? We recognize that oftentimes in that graph we might be doing these things, right? But what I want to tell you is this, is after coming to Jesus, 
right? If your line is this, what does that look like in a heart monitor? A flat line. You're dead. Lovingly, what I want to tell you is pum 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 pum. Okay? And so the trajectory of your life, whether it's up or down, as you plot that graph, should be, after having come to faith in Jesus Christ, away from the passions and the sinful desires of the Lord, or of the world, excuse me, and toward our Lord and Savior Jesus. Little by little, day by day, moment by moment. The world should be fading away and the kingdom should be coming into focus. And the reason that I say that, please hear me, non-legalistically, non-legalistically, I don't, I, I, I prayed so hard that this sermon would not be one about legalism, but the reality of the fact that our hearts should be driven toward holiness, toward being separated for God. And lovingly, what I want to tell you again that I just cry out and say is, how is it that there are so many megachurches out there, and yet when we look and we see about simple things of the true Christian faith, basic tenets of Christian doctrine, people have no idea what they're talking about. Friends, false teachers will have a false passion. And then continuing on in verses essentially 15 through 18, false teachers will make false promises. Please watch what Peter says here. He continues on and he says, They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor. Now, Balaam essentially was a prophet back in Old Testament, Numbers 22 through 24. He was essentially teaching and preaching a different faith. God gets upset and like Shrek, brings about donkey. Donkey says, hey, this isn't right. And rebukes Balaam and says that he is a false prophet. Peter is reminding the church of that fact because there are individuals within the church who are promoting essentially a return to an unorthodox, judo-quasi-faith that isn't the gospel. And so essentially for those individuals of that day, when he brings up this false prophet, it would essentially be like me talking about Rob Bell. Oh, okay, I get it. I know him, I understand who he is, that didn't go so well. Hmm, we probably should take notice. And then he continues on and he says, who loved the wages of wickedness, but was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice, and restrain the prophet's madness. So lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is, if I'm ever up here in the pulpit and a donkey walks in and says, hey, what's going on, everybody? <laughs> Probably time to sit me down in the office and ask me a few questions about my faith. Okay, jokingly, but seri like, seriously. Check your faith. 
Check what's being taught and preached in a pulpit. Continues on and it says, verse 17, and this is what I want to focus on. This is where I'm talking about they will make false promises. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. People of this day would recognize the value of water. Okay, in the dry, arid context that this letter was being delivered, water was incredibly valuable. And so, sort of the analogy here is that these springs have dried up, or I would say, more important, they've never had water in the first place. So what they've done is they've come forward and they've created this all fancy well in this imagery, this beautiful thing. And what they're doing is, is they're feeding you what you think is nourishing. But what they're giving you isn't living water. I think somebody said that somewhere in the Bible at some point, didn't they? Mists driven by a storm, here today and gone tomorrow. Friends, so often it will happen, it will happen over and over again as we'll hear of these new aspects of the Christian faith or these new points that we need to turn to or, oh, we've missed it for so many centuries or, oh, there's this hidden secret or, oh, there's this delivering truth and everybody will get all excited and say, finally, there's the answer that we're looking for because it sounds good to what my heart wants. Your heart is wicked. Your heart in and of itself does not want God. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing, notice this, by appealing to the lustful nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. I don't know about you, but yeah, I, my heart, my heart would love to have a God that exists to serve me how I want, when I want, and where I want. I would love to have a genie in a bottle. Doesn't sound right, does it? And so what these individuals do is they come up with a guise of Christian faith. And what they do is, is they change the context of the gospel to lure your lustful heart toward a false gospel. You can be a better person. You can be this. You can be that. You can do these things. Your life will change if you just do this. Oh, I believe in Jesus, but don't worry about the Bible. I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in whatever it might be. And so what they do is, is they entice people with the lustful desires of the sinful human nature. False teachers will make false promises. Why can I state that? 
because their promises are false, because they're false teachers. They have no ground to stand on. Their promises, as sweet as they might sound to the lustful, wicked heart, are dead because they are not alive. And then, continuing on, not only will false teachers have a false passion, make false promises, but they will promote a false freedom. Please hear me on this. They will promote a false freedom. Verse 19, they promise them freedom. Sounds great. Come and be free. The only problem is, as Peter continues on, he says, they themselves are slaves of depravity. They're not free. So how can someone promise freedom when they themselves are not free? It's impossible. So they, in a guise, say, go, be free. Discover this, do their thing, all the while when they themselves are still enslaved to sin. Someone who is a slave cannot promote freedom. And then interestingly, watch this. It continues on, and he says, for a man is slave to whatever has mastered him. Don't miss this. Man is slave to whatever has mastered him. So think through this for a minute. You're a slave to sin. Jesus dies on the cross to free you from sin. I'm free, right? Mater, Lightning McQueen, he's off doing his thing. I'm out of here. I'm off, can do whatever. No, lovingly, who is your master now? Is Jesus your Lord? And I don't know about you, but I'm happy to be a slave to Jesus. Because he is my Lord. And right now, so many churches are promoting the aspect of be free. But don't call Jesus Lord. Continues on in verse 20, and it says, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are once again entangled in it, and overcome, they are worse off in the end than they were at the beginning. They will promote a false freedom. But also what I want to tell you, particularly as we see in verse 21, that false teachers are false believers. And this is important to see. False teachers are false believers. Believers, They never were a believer in the first place. They're not sheep who transform. They're wolves, false believers, masquerading in sheep's clothing. This verse has been confused, and I want to just take some time in encouraging, is that often people say, well, could this mean that someone could lose their salvation? And what I want to tell you is, note the context, note how it's written, but then note also how it's laid in Second Peter, and then note also how it lays into the context of the rest of Scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to just say this. Analogously, he's saying, if, okay, don't miss this, in verse 20, if, 
Not they had, not definitively, if. They had escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome. They are worse off in the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. It isn't definitive. It isn't that they were and now they're not. It's they never were in the first place. He's just adding emphasis to the corruption that is there. Continues, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that what, of what was passed to them. What I want to encourage you in, friends, is this, and this is what I'd like just to take some time sort of developing, and then we'll continue on to the last part of this passage. God promises that those who truly know him will never fall away because he will keep us by his grace. Now, there's a lot in that. So the first thing I want to tell you is, is that do you truly know Jesus? That's that real relationship with Jesus Christ. But the promise that is made is discovered all through Scripture, and so I just want to read a few verses to solidify this. John 10, 27 through 29 says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I gave them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus talking. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. Once you are saved, you are always saved. The question is, are you really saved? And who is your faith truly in? Romans 8, 28 through 39. I'm going to just read essentially 28 through 30 just to give the context, but I encourage you to continue reading to the end. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be comforted in the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, passive, done. Those he called, passive, done, he also justified, passive, done, completed, final. Those he justified, passive, done, completed, final, he also glorified, passive, done, completed, final. It's an already, but not yet statement of the transcendent nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as to what is being done but has been done, period. And so friends, what I want to encourage you in is oftentimes I find people freaking out, thinking, oh my gosh, have I lost my salvation? And they fall into this deep, dark area. And I simply go to them and I say, number one, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Yes. How is God working in your life? Is he Lord of your life? Yes, he is. What's going on? Well, I've been following Jesus and my life has fallen into a mess. And I look at them and I say, God still is there and you still are his. What happened to the apostles? 
they didn't retire healthy, wealthy, and wise. So just because you're in a storm, just because God isn't doing what you think he should do, just because your life isn't what you hope or want it to be, does not mean that God doesn't love you and you are not saved. Now, lovingly, perhaps, if your life isn't going very well and you are enticed by the lustful passions of the world, then it's a heart check. Do you know Jesus? Philippians 1.6 Being confident of this, that he who began, started a good work in you will carry it definitive to completion. 100%. Not will carry it to 85% of the way and then the rest is up to you. Or if things aren't going well, you could have the ball dropped and Jesus is going to fumble you on the 10-yard line. No. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Until Jesus returns, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Period. Rest. Revel in the joy of your salvation. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, okay, and this is sort of the reverse, but they did not really belong to us. So there were people masquerading part of, essentially, the entourage. But Jesus has said, I knew all along that they didn't belong. They had not belonged to us, for if they had belonged to us, they, had, they would have remained with us. But their going showed definitive that none of them belonged to us. Ever. It wasn't, you know, they did, but now they don't. They never did in the first place. And so friends, what I want to tell you is this, that even though sometimes people might say, well gosh, is it possible that you could lose your salvation? No. These false teachers were false teachers, period. They never knew Jesus. They just looked really good. They were a wolf with an awesome Halloween costume that looked like a sheep. But they're still a wolf. And then finally, false teachers will reveal their true unregenerate nature. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Peter essentially is using two Proverbs that people would recognize to essentially accentuate his point. He's saying, yep, they might look good. Yep, they might do their thing. Yep, they might be popular. Yep, they might sound good. Yep, they might have a huge following. Yep, they might be the newest, latest, greatest thing. Yep, a lot of people might think that they're amazing. But what I'm going to tell you is at some point, because they are false, a dog will return to its vomit. A sow will return to the mud. Why? Because they're still a dog and they're still a sow. And so what I want to tell you is this, having the appearance of being saved 
They will reveal their true unregenerate nature by returning to the vomit and the mire of the world. And again, it's out of Proverbs 26.11, as a dog returns to it vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. And so I leave you with a point of contemplation. Not a take-home truth, a point of contemplation. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. For a time will come when people will not want to put up with sound doctrine. A time will come when people will not want to put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, create their own God, create their own passions, create their own salvation, create their own whatever, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Jesus exists to make you better. You're already good. Jesus exists to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Send me money and I will give you the secret to that success. Jesus can turn your life from mess to everything you want it to be. I will give you that clue for the one day price of $9.99. Order now while supplies last. So do me a favor, you're telling me all about this, but I see Jesus in the Bible. Well, we don't really talk about the Bible around here. It's old, it's antiquated. Well, I see something where it's Jesus is Lord and I'm to give my life over to him. Well, you know, Jesus is kind of a good guy. He's a prophet, but we certainly don't say that he's God. Do you see where we're going? They will turn their ears away from the truth. Don't miss this. Away from the truth and turn aside to myths, fables, untruth. And so friends, what I want to tell you is simply this, is lovingly, humbly, but seriously. Has a time come when people are not putting up a sound doctrine? And instead, to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And is it possible that maybe perhaps those ears have turned away from the truth and moved toward myths? Wells without water. Mists driven by a storm. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just thank you for you. Father, I know that this passage is one that is kind of right in your face. But Lord, I pray that in it, it would encourage our hearts. I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead, encourage, guide, and direct. Father, I pray that in it, it would encourage us to draw to a deeper, real relationship with you, that we would grow in our faith, but we would also have a grounded faith. So that when, not if, but when, false teaching comes, that we can discern and say, hey, that's not right. That's not the gospel. Father, there are parts of Scripture where individuals have different thoughts. 
But Lord, the main thrust, the main tenets of the faith, may we hold on to. May we recognize the importance of the church, its teaching, the doctrines that have been placed before us. And Lord, may we hold on to them. May we be wise in this. And Father, may we do what we can in your mercy and your grace to teach and preach the message of the gospel to those whom so desperately need it. Father, we thank you for you. Lead, guide, and direct us this week. May our hearts be drawn closer to you. May you speak to us through your word. May you lead, guide, and direct us so that we see you more clearly and love you more dearly. We ask and we pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.